Okay, well, good morning to you all. Hope you're doing well. If you would, turn to Romans chapter 6. And we'll pray together and we'll talk a little bit about what our plans are during this hour for the next few weeks. Hope you had a good week. Hope you're doing well. Nice, crisp, beautiful morning. Let's uh, pray. Father, we are thankful that we can be here. We thank you so much for your word that tells us what we need to know about life, about you, about ourselves. And we pray that you would encourage us. You've given us your word so that we might persevere through our trials and might be encouraged and have hope in the midst of a difficult world, no doubt about that. And so we pray that you would teach us and lead us and grow us through this time. Uh, Please be with the children during their Sunday school time as well. We pray for them and for us that you'd open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and that you'd grant us fresh supplies of grace through your word by your spirit and that we would see and know and believe your love for us in greater, deeper, richer ways. And we do pray that as we talk about uh, what you've done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ, please help us to see ourselves more and more like you see us because of what you've done for us. And so we just commit this time to you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's see. Let's see if this is working this morning. So we're going to look at uh, Romans 6 this morning uh, and talk about what Paul has to say about what is true of us as Christians, which is always an interesting thing in light of what the Bible says, because typically we don't see ourselves the way the Bible sees us, whether it's in terms of our being sinners or in terms of our being saints. So either way, if we're thinking about what's true of us as sinners, we typically don't see it the way the Bible says it really is. And even as saints, those who are children of God, we don't typically see ourselves and see our relationship with God as the Bible says it really is. And so we want to talk about that, or at least begin talking about that. We're going to look at um, three chapters, Romans 6, 7, and 8, over the next three weeks. And then on February 2nd, our plan, Lord willing, is to start um, going through a biblical counseling training that isn't just about counseling. It's A lot of it's um, discipleship. And a lot of people who go through biblical counseling courses will say it was one of the most enriching things I've ever gone through. So in one sense, it helps to equip you to minister to others. In another sense, it helps you in evaluating your own heart and life and helps you to grow as a Christian. And so we're looking at doing that beginning on February 2nd. Uh, for the next three weeks, uh, this week, Romans 6, Romans 7 next week, and Romans 8, the third week before we start the counseling uh curriculum, which um, Dan, myself, Jackson, and and Mark will lead in that discussion. These three chapters are the very basics of the Christian life in terms of growing in Christ, in terms of dealing with sin, in terms of understanding what Christ has done for us to help us live our daily Christian lives. And so we want to uh, take a look at that and think about that. Um, there was a um, little girl who eventually would grow up to be the wife of Charles Lindbergh. 
And she was about six years old, and she was at this dinner party that her parents were throwing for a number of different people. And one of the people that came uh, was Calvin Coolidge, who would one day be the 30th president of the U.S. And so I guess at the time of the dinner, uh, Calvin Coolidge was uh, either considering running for president or uh, actually running for president. I'm not sure exactly the timeline there, but he... Calvin Coolidge went to the party and then he left and everybody was talking about Calvin Coolidge and and um, the father of the little girl said, you know, I think Calvin Coolidge could make a really good president. And everybody said, oh, no, no, he's he's too quiet. You know, he doesn't have much of a personality. You know, I don't we don't really think he would make a good president. And then the little girl uh, spoke up and said, I, I like him. You know, he was the only one at the party that noticed that I had a Band-Aid on my finger and asked me what was wrong with my finger. And so her dad says, see, that's why I think Calvin Coolidge is going to make a good president because he has right concerns, basically. And so one of the things that is important to keep in mind with regard to godliness, what it means to be a godly person, is that you have right concerns, that your concerns are different from those who aren't godly, who aren't thinking about God, their relationship with God, not thinking about the Word of God, not thinking about how to live their life uh, in light of the fact that there is a God that we will one day have to give an account to. And so one of the concerns that we should have as godly people is a concern about sin. And yet the concern about sin is a real is a tricky thing. I think this is the next slide here, if I can remember what I put up here. On the one hand, you've got people like Martin Luther that will talk about sin in this way and concern for sin in this way. He said, God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Sin boldly. You've probably heard that before in one context or another. Sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. So Martin Luther is highlighting the fact that um, we have to be careful of being afraid of sin or concerned about sin in such a way that we minimize what Christ has done for us and that we aren't able to rejoice. I'm sorry. That we're not able to rejoice in what Christ has done for us, and find peace in the face of our sin. That's what he's talking about when he says sin boldly. He's not saying sin. He's saying when you sin, don't be afraid to acknowledge your sin because you have a Savior. Don't be afraid to actually see your sin and talk about your sin and acknowledge your sin. Uh, That's the bold part. It's not, I'm just going to sin because I don't have to worry about it. It's that I have a great, great Savior, even though I might have great sin. And so on the one hand, we have to be careful of being concerned about sin in such a way that we minimize the salvation that's been provided for us, and we're not able to rejoice in what Christ has done. On the other hand, you've got men like John Owen who would say, do you mortify? The word mortify means like mortician, has to do with death, putting to death. Do you mortify? And he's talking about sin. Do you put to death sin? Do you make it your daily work 
Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's a famous quote from John Owen. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So the idea there is that sin is not something to be trifled with. Sin is not something that uh, we should think is a small thing, a little thing, that, it, that we, shouldn't, we should not, not be concerned uh, about sin. Because sin, and we'll see this as we go through Romans 6, sin is something that brings death. And therefore, on the one hand, we should not be concerned about sin in such a way that we're not able to rejoice in the face of our sin because we have a great Savior. On the other hand, we should be concerned about sin in a way that says sin is not a good thing. Sin is not a safe thing. Sin is not something I should be unconcerned about, even though my sin has been forgiven. And so I say all that just to highlight uh, what we're going to be talking about here in this chapter, because Paul is going to give us a number of different reasons why we should be concerned about sin. And I think that's pretty much a summary of it. We're going to talk about antinomianism. We'll explain what that is. Our union with Christ, freedom from sin, the command of God to love, and the pursuit of happiness. All of those things are things that Paul touches on in Romans 6 that are reasons why we should be concerned about sin in light of what sin is. Not in light of the fact that we don't have a Savior great enough to deal with it. We do. And yet, what God has done for us in Christ is very much about dealing with sin. So we'll talk about that. But first of all, let me read for us Romans 6. So if you would, look at your Bibles and let's read this chapter. I remember when I was in college, uh, we actually memorized Romans 6 and spent quite a bit of time working through Romans 6. It's a very, very important chapter in terms of how we think about ourselves as Christians. So in verse 1 he says... What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, 
but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Typically at the beginning of a new year, we think in terms of establishing new habits, new patterns of life, uh, stopping some things, starting other things, and and that kind of uh, dynamic often goes on in our minds. And as we pray and as we think, we uh, begin to wonder what should be different this year from last year, either in terms of not doing those things or in terms of doing things that are new. And the question is, why would we ever have any hope of being able to do something like that? Why would we ever think that I can be different uh, this year from the way I was last year? Um, there's a story about Greg Luganus, who was a Olympic diver. You may remember him. He won a number of gold medals in two different Olympics as a diver. And somebody asked him one time, uh, you know, you get nervous when you dive? And he says, oh, yeah, yeah. And they said, so how do you... Uh, maintain your composure when you're performing, when you're diving. And he simply made the comment, even if I, he, he tells himself this, even if I blow this dive, my mother will still love me. <clears throat> now, how do you interpret that? I mean, if, if you were to tell yourself something like that, you're about to do something that's hard, that um, has the potential for great failure, but also great success, Uh, And you go into it basically saying, got to remember, even if I don't do well, even if I fail, mom still loves me. How is that helpful? Or something like that. You you can put somebody else in there besides mom. How is that meant to be a helpful thing, do you think? Karen? Um, I think it's just encouraging yourself that you still have worth as a person, even though you don't win the Olympic medal or... Or if you fail in something that's really important to you, um, life goes on, and it's not all about winning the Olympic medals so much in life as other things that are more important. Okay, great. So one aspect of it has to do with 
what's most important. Part of it has to do with what's going to stay the same, even if I fail. Jan? Well, based on what you said right before you told this story, I'm thinking um, a mom sees her child as like when he first was starting to swim and first starting to dive and is probably one of the one people persons who has seen how far he's come and how far he's grown so he may blow this dive today but his mom knows how far he's come and he's not where he started okay that's another important aspect of especially when you relate it to the christian life not only where we are, but how far we've come in different respects. So there's all kinds of ways that you can understand how he could find encouragement from something like that. One other way to think about it is that's grace, right? That's a, that's a picture of grace, that no matter whether I fail at this or not, my mom's still going to love me. And there's no doubt if you read the first five chapters of the book of Romans, It basically talks about things, and I'm putting this in my own words, that God is the source of our happiness, that grace and peace come to us from God. To me, grace is the help we need, peace in terms of shalom, the the Old Testament Hebrew idea of peace is true happiness, and that's found in God. Our problem as sinners is that we've chosen to look for happiness in other places, um, all the wrong places. And as a result, God has provided a Savior in his Son, who's an able and willing Savior for us. And he offers us the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of his own righteousness. And Paul wraps up um, chapter 5 by highlighting the fact that all those who receive the gift of righteousness, meaning the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of a perfect record of obedience, which is basically the the obedience of Christ, all those who receive that gift of righteousness, as he says in verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And so it's talking about the abundance of grace, just like in that illustration with Greg Luganus. He was living out his life in light of the grace of his mom's love, that he knew that that wasn't going to change, that she was going to still love him even if he performed poorly. And that is the foundation for chapter 6, that we don't try to put to death sin, we don't try to grow in Christ, we don't try to obey because we have to somehow earn God's love, but it's on the basis of already knowing that he's going to love me even if I fail today. And Paul will go on to say in verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're received by God, we're forgiven by God, we're um, loved by God by grace, undeserved favor, all because of what Christ has done for us. And then Paul makes the point that even where sin is great, grace is greater. As a result, uh, he says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So, So the idea is that wherever sin increased, grace increased. 
because God's grace was greater than our sin, like we like to sing about. But the question comes, well then, if all of this salvation is about the glory of God's grace, maybe if I sin more, God shows me more grace and he gets more glory. And so maybe that's how you're supposed to live the Christian life is just do what you want and sin like you will. God gives more grace and he gets more glory because it's all about his grace, right? And so Paul says, may it never be. There's a little clip from an old Martin Luther movie that I want to show you because it's, it's a great illustration of this very thing that Paul starts out by addressing. And it's a scene where uh, Tetzel is the guy who sells indulgences on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church to build St. Peter's Basilica. And an indulgence is basically a piece of paper that says the Pope absolves you from all sin just based on the money you've, you've paid for this indulgence. And then this guy gets one of those indulgences and Martin Luther confronts him and the dialogue um, highlights the very kind of thing that Paul is addressing here. Now, my good people, this is no ordinary indulgence. This will build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And you will share in every Mass that is said from now till doomsday. Here, in the Pope's own Latin, Plenaria. Remissio, omnium peccatorum. What does that mean? Full forgiveness for all sins. Absolution from all punishments. No confession necessary. Valid even for your loved ones in purgatory. For who would see his mother in flames when, with a piece of silver, he can set her free. For, as soon as the money clinks in the chest, the soul flies up to heavenly rest. Come along, good people. Come. Follow them. Come, good William, who oh, is that? Look at me. Oh, I. No. Good Father Martin. Good Father Martin. Oh. You'll see how you feel about Good Father Martin after you've been to confession. Ah, I don't have to make no confessions. No. <laughs> My sins are forgiven. Forever. Who says so? Himself. How'd you get this? Across the river. 
I paid good money for it. So help me God, and I'll put a hole in his drum. I don't know if you caught all that, but basically the discussion that happened there at the end is that guy's drunk, okay? He's laid out. Martin Luther comes up and says, uh, what are you doing, Willie? And um, you're going to need to come to confession and take care of this situation. And he says, I don't need to go to confession because I've got this indulgence from the Pope that says all my sins are forgiven and I don't have to worry about it, which is a great illustration of the very thing that Paul is talking about. If we have complete forgiveness of sin, why should we care about sin? Why should we be concerned about our sin? Why can't we just get drunk or do anything else that we know is sin? Why, should, why shouldn't we just give ourselves to it? And Romans 6 is Paul's answer to that very question. Why if we're forgiven of sin, should we be concerned about it? And the very first uh, point to make that he makes is that antinomianism, which means lawlessness, means anti-law. And it's the idea that for whatever reason, even in the time of Paul, when he was preaching the gospel, there were those who would hear what he has to, had to say about the gospel And come to the conclusion that, well, you know, if God will forgive me simply based on what Christ has done, then I can live the way I want to live. And it's interesting, there are those like um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said this. He said, if your preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, You're not preaching the gospel of the free grace of God and Jesus Christ. So he goes on to say in various places as he comments on the book of Romans, he says, in your personal evangelism or in your preaching or in your gospel conversations with people, if there aren't times at which people might accuse you of saying, so what you're saying is God will forgive me of my sin because of Christ and I can live like I want to live. If people don't sometimes hear it that way, Martin Lloyd-Jones was arguing, maybe we're not preaching the gospel as we should. Why? Why would he say that? Because Paul was accused of doing that very thing. He was accused of somehow justifying evil and seeing evil as being something we should not be concerned about. In fact, there's a verse earlier in Romans In chapter 3, verse 8, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's very similar when it says, Paul says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. And so he was saying there are those who are hearing what Paul was preaching and coming to the conclusion that, therefore, let's do evil that good may come. Now, in the context... It's the idea that God works evil for good, that he uses sin and evil to actually bring about his good purposes. And so some could conclude, well, let's do evil then, because it kind of helps God out, because he uses evil and sin to bring about his good purposes. And it's not 
a very big leap to say, and if God saves us by grace and where sin abounds, grace abounds, therefore, why not just sin more so that God's grace can, can abound even more? And so um, we always have to be careful of, of anything, any understanding of what the Bible says that encourages us to not be concerned about sin. If there's any truth in Scripture that somehow undermines our desire to put to death sin, then we're misapplying that truth. We're misunderstanding that truth. If it makes us less concerned about holiness, less concerned about obedience, less concerned about doing what God calls us to do, any truth that we might hold in such a way that it results in that kind of fruit, means we're not applying it rightly. We're, we're misapplying the truth. It's sort of like the truth of God's sovereignty, that the God has to save, he has to raise people from the dead. We can take that truth and say, well, then I shouldn't be so concerned about sharing the gospel. That would be a misapplication of the truth because God says, no, I want you to share the gospel. I want you to tell people that they can be forgiven of their sins and be given a gift of righteousness simply by trusting in my son. I want you to tell people that. Yes, it takes a work of God for people to see that and to believe it, but we have to be careful of misapplying the truth. And that's what Paul is dealing with here in this situation as as well. So the first thing is just to realize that we're prone to lessen the significance of sin in our own lives. And as someone has said, we're prone to magnify other people's sin. We see other people's sin as being really bad, especially when it's against us. But we tend to minimize our sin. And we can very easily become antinomian in the way we approach uh, God's word and, and sin and not be as concerned about it as we should. And so Paul is going to argue that if we really understand the gospel and what Christ has done, then there's no way that we cannot be concerned about sin. And that brings us to a whole issue of union with Christ. When you think about the idea of union with Christ, does, does anything come to mind? And if so, and you'd like to share that, uh, just raise your hand. I ask it that way because someone has commented on the fact that one of the most prominent truths in the New Testament is our union with Christ, and yet it's one of the least talked about truths in, in church circles for various reasons. But when you think about that idea that you are, you are united to Christ as a Christian, is there, is there anything that comes to mind for you uh, as you think about that or has it does it have meaning to you i guess is is maybe one way of putting it tim well the first thing that comes to my mind is in the times of my life where i didn't feel like i had anybody he's always been the one the one that was going to be there through everything so, I mean, <laughs> at this point, I, I would feel horrified if 
I didn't have that there. So that's the only thing I can think of. Um, kind of like maybe elaborate on the question a little bit more would be good. Yeah. Well, I think you're hitting on the very idea of what we're talking about in the sense that the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament talks about our relationship with God in terms of the marriage union. And therefore, when we think about being married to someone, we think about the reality that um, our union with them is positive in light of the positive things about them, and it can be negative in light of the negative things about them. And and our relationship together. It's kind of like I, I read a little um, <clears throat> blog post on this book. This is a book about a little boy who supposedly was in an accident, he was paralyzed, he was in a coma for two months, and afterwards he and his dad supposedly wrote this book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, and it was supposed to be about his experience going to heaven after his accident and while he was in his coma and how he supposedly saw angels and and Jesus and all kinds of things. And they wrote this book in light of that. And then several years later, as the boy got older, he was about 11 or so, I think, at the time when the accident happened. By the time he was 15 or 16, he and his mom were beginning to discount everything that was said. And they were basically saying that the dad kind of made it up. And Tyndale was the publisher, I think, of this book, made a lot of money off of it initially, and then they ended up taking it off the shelf after the young man said, you know, that never really happened. But the point of it is, in reading through the article, you could see how what happened um, between the, the father and the mother and the son basically resulted in divorce, and uh, the son and the mother were still living together, but they were on the verge of homelessness. Just You just think about the, um, the result of the decisions that were made. That is a negative, obviously, illustration of the positive point I'm making. And the positive point I'm making is... In that situation with that marriage, that union resulted in negative things. It's just the opposite with Christ. That our union with Christ is something that brings about wonderful benefits. First of all, we can say we benefit from Christ's past actions. All that he did on the cross and whatever benefit comes from that, Everyone who trusts in Christ benefits from that. And this is very much the next point in light of what you were saying, Tim. To be united with Christ means that whatever his present resources are, they are our resources. And what resources are those? He rules and reigns over everything. He owns everything. So that his resources are my resources. Just like uh, whoever you're married to, their resources are your resources. It's the same kind of union for us in Christ. And that's why the Bible could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, all my needs will be met through through Christ because in him I have all that I need. And you could say that just like your future and your husband or wife's future 
is the same in a sense. The future of Christ is our future. Whatever lies ahead for him lies ahead for us as those who are united to him. But in particular, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 6. There's another aspect of this union with Christ that Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 6 that is important in light of what he's arguing here is that the purpose of our union with Christ is not to encourage sin, but it's actually meant to overcome sin. And so, um, in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And so, if you just think about the implications of what he's saying there, he's saying that what I do with my body, in some sense, (coughs) excuse me, involves Christ. And so, would I, if I do, trust Christ and love Christ, would I want to involve Christ in sin? Would I want to drag Christ into something that was unholy and unrighteous? And so, that's the same kind of thing Paul is arguing in Romans 6, when he starts out by saying, in verse 2, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You know, if you you think about um, the things that you'd like to see change this year, and I think all of us as Christians are going to have some sin issues on that list. There will be other issues that aren't sin issues, uh, maybe just practical issues. But as Christians, I'm sure there will be some sin issues on the list of things that we'd really like to see changed this year. The question is, where would we start? Where would you start in trying to address those sin issues, wanting wanting to overcome anger or wanting to be um, less anxious and fearful? What, whatever the sin might be, um, where would you start? Paul starts with what Christ did for us. We might start with, well... I need to avoid this, and I need to start doing this. And we might come up with a lot of different things that we need to stop doing or start doing. You know, I don't want to look at stuff on the Internet that I shouldn't, so I'm going to get this this filter. That might be where we would start with those kinds of things. And those kinds of things are important. But that's not the place where Paul starts. He goes all the way back to the cross, And so it's important for us to realize that that's where we need to start, too, when we're thinking about growth in particular areas and overcoming particular sins, that it's not just about practical stuff, as important as that might be in certain places. It's more a matter of what is true spiritually, and do I believe it? It's just like this week I was reading about um, the blind men who came to Jesus for healing, and they go up to him, and he says, what do you want? And and they say, we, we want to see. And Jesus says, be it done to you according to your faith. Now, there are those in the health and wealth gospel that will take that 
and basically argue that the reason why you don't get your healing today is because you don't have enough faith. I believe that's a misunderstanding and a misapplication of that story and what Jesus does. But there is a right understanding and a right application of that story. And the pictures of healing in the Gospels were meant to do a number of things. For one thing, it was supposed to confirm that Jesus was who he said he was. But it was also meant to picture what was really most of concern to God, which is deliverance from sin. Sickness and the various kinds of weaknesses and sicknesses that people have are really pictures of spiritual conditions. And God may not heal people physically through Christ, but it is his intent to heal people spiritually and to rescue them from sin and to set them free from sin. And so when Jesus says, be it done to you according to your faith, I apply that to spiritual need for healing and growth and freedom from sin, which means... Whether or not I believe what the gospel says is important to my being free from sin. I think that's why Paul says what he says. Because he says in verse 2, How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? So he's talking about what do we know is true about what Christ has done for us. That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now Paul, when t- Paul talks about being baptized into Christ... He's he's uniting something that isn't always united. But typically, in the New Testament, when somebody trusted Christ, they were baptized as a statement of their faith in Christ. And it usually didn't take, you know, years between trusting in Christ and getting baptized. So many, many times when the New Testament talks about being baptized into Christ... It's talking about coming to Christ. It's talking about trusting in Christ. And so he's talking about those who have trusted in Christ. And he says, all of us who've trusted in Christ have experienced something that we would not know about unless God told us. That's what he's saying, that there's something that has happened to us that we would not know about unless God had told us. And what is that? He says that we've been baptized into the death of Christ in verse 3. Then in verse 4 he says, Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, that's the union with Christ part, we're united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So what is Paul saying about where we need to start in dealing with particular sins that we'd like to see put to death or overcome in greater ways this year? Where are we to start based on what he just said there? Think about that, and if you'd like to comment, just raise your hand. But take a moment. What is he really telling us to do? Where is he telling us to start?
It's really interesting where he tells us to start. He tells us to start with believing that you're free from that sin, but you're not enslaved to it. Typically, when we think about things that we'd like to see changed, and yet we've tried, we generally come to the conclusion that we're, in some sense, a slave to that. And we typically think, I don't know how I'm ever going to be different. I don't, I don't see myself as ever being free from this. I don't see myself as ever responding differently in this kind of situation. And Paul says where you need to start is you need to have a radical change of mind. That's what it says in Romans 12, that we're to have our minds renewed. We're to, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to think differently, believe differently what is really true about us. And he says, what happened is when you trusted in Christ, you were united with Christ so that whatever Christ did, you participated in. He died on the cross for sinners, and therefore when you trusted him, you became united with him in his death and you became united with him in his resurrection so that he did what he did as it says in first john to destroy the works of the devil here paul says he did what he did that our that our body of sin might be done away with so that the old man we were enslaved to sin might be dead that we are not the same person that we used to be. That's why I could say in Second Corinthians, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. That we're not the same person we used to be. And so he says the, <clears throat> the point at which you begin to actually have victory over sin is believing that you don't have to do that. You don't have to respond that way. You don't have to sin that way. Why? Because Christ has set you free. Christ has set you free. It's, it's kind of like we used the illustration before of the um, how they train elephants. You know, when they're real small, they'll put a strong rope around their leg and tie it to a stake, and that little elephant will pull and pull and pull and finally can't overcome that rope and can't get free, and that Elephant will grow to be a huge adult elephant and still be held by that little rope. Why? Is it because that rope is strong enough to hold it? No, because in their mind, that rope is strong enough to hold it. All they have to do is have their minds renewed and they would be free. And Paul is arguing that we are, we should not see ourselves as slaves to sin. If we still see ourselves as slaves to sin, then we're not thinking like we ought to think. And the question is, what do you do? How, how, do, you, how do you think differently? Just very practically. <clears throat> what do you do? Look, if you will, at verse 11. This is actually the first exhortation in the book of Romans the first place where he actually exhorts us to do something is in verse 11. So he talks about what's true about what Christ has done for us and how we're in union with Christ. And then he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. And that's all because of what Christ has done. Um, How do you go from believing that you're a slave to sin to believing that you're really free from it? What do you think? How, How does that happen? Karen? Um, I think that it's a work of God in our heart. He gives us faith to believe in him. And um, so maybe that's where the renewing of the mind comes with the faith. Okay. Yes, I think that's, that's what we have to realize is that if I see something in the Bible that says, this is what's true of you. Or this is what's true of me. Um, If I read uh, in verse 7, he who has died, meaning died with Christ, through faith in Christ, is freed from sin. Um, When I read that, I may think it doesn't feel that way. That doesn't seem to be my experience. But God says that's true. And as I've said before, humility isn't thinking the worst thing you can think about yourself. Humility is saying about yourself what God says is true, positive or negative. If he says you're a sinner, to be humble is to say, yes, I'm a sinner. If he says I'm free from sin, to be humble is to say, yes, I'm free from sin. Humility is all about receiving what God says is true about me. And therefore, if I find myself reading those things and thinking that that just doesn't seem consistent with my experience, well, number one, I have to acknowledge the fact that my experience isn't the uh, thing that defines reality. God is the one who tells me what's true. And Jesus said the truth will set you free. And so where I begin is I, I say, God, you have said that this is true, that I am not a slave to sin, any particular sin, and I'm free from that sin. Obviously, that doesn't, that isn't my experience. Help me to believe that. I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> to, some, to some degree, I mean, we all have experienced some growth and some victory over sin as Christians, there's, there are certain areas where we realize we still need to grow. We still need a victory over sin. And so in some sense, we can say, I do believe that I can be set free from sin. I do believe that I can grow because I've seen some growth in my life. I've seen some sin overcome. I've, I've seen some grace. But help my unbelief because there are other areas and other ways in which I still feel like I'm enslaved. And so the whole... Uh, argument here for Paul is basically the idea that I need to see myself differently. That that book there was written by Peter Lord um, years ago at Coast, I think. Um, Peter Lord and maybe his wife maybe ministered at Coast a little bit, I'm not sure. There was some kind of connection there because of Norm. But uh, Peter Lord was a pastor in Florida that Norm was associated with for a while and And he wrote this book based on a sermon that he preached called Turkeys and Eagles. And the basic point of the story or the illustration was there were these eaglets that fell out of their nest. And they were adopted by this turkey family. 
and they're real small, and so the turkeys raise the eagles or eaglets uh, just like they were turkeys, and so they're you know, rooting in the ground for grubs, and they're eating seeds, and they're doing what turkeys do. And then one day, uh, one of the eagles has grown up and is is uh, doing his turkey thing, but he's not real happy about you know his life, and he's walking through the woods, and and this owl, this wise owl, says, "Who, who are you?" And he says, "I'm a turkey." And he says, "Oh no, you're not. You're not a turkey. You're an eagle." And eagles fly up high in the sky, and they eat meat. They don't eat grubs. And and so the owl gives the the eagle a true understanding of who he really is. And the eagle flies off and starts acting like an eagle. So that's just a brief recounting of the story, but it's basically the idea that if we believe we're turkeys, we will live like turkeys. If we believe we're slaves of sin, we'll just live like slaves of sin. If we believe we're eagles, then we'll live like eagles. If we believe we're actually free and able to soar and actually make progress and make growth and become more like Christ, not perfectly. We're going to get into Romans 7. (laughs) Romans 7 brings a little perspective on how far to take some of what he says in, in Romans 6. But don't discount Romans 6 because of Romans 7. Romans 6 makes some profound statements about what Christ has done for us. He has not only dealt with the penalty of sin, he's dealt with the power of sin over our lives. So that we can truly expect to grow this year in all kinds of ways. And yet we need to feed through prayer and meditation on the scriptures um, our faith in who we are in Christ. Um, You know, do I see myself primarily as a child of God who is forgiven and righteous and loved by God? Do I see myself as someone who um, is, has been set free from sin, uh, someone over which sin has no right to be my master any longer. That's what he says throughout the remainder of the chapter. And so um, <clears throat> in so many ways he talks about the freedom that we have from sin. And it's helpful to think about what sin is. We only have a couple minutes here, so let me just kind of wrap it up for us. Sin is a failure to love God. Sin is a failure to love others as we should. If you read passages like Matthew 22, it makes that clear. Sin is a failure to glorify God and to fulfill our purpose in life. Sin is a failure to obey God's word. Sin is a failure to trust God. And as Christians, we have to say... Yes, I want to fight sin. I don't want to not love God. I don't want to not love people. I don't want to not glorify God. I don't want to disobey what God says. Uh, All those things, you know, I don't want to not trust God. So sin has to do with all those things. And we're to fight to trust God, to love God, to love others, excuse me, to glorify God. And to do what he says we should do. And yet there's two things, and I'll just wrap up with this. We have to keep in mind, and and Paul kind of concludes the chapter by highlighting this. On the one hand, he says in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Sin never gives us what it promises. 
sin always brings death. And so it's sort of like, um, I'm going to pass up that real quick. Sort of like this raccoon here. Uh, I read a book one time by a former zookeeper who's a Christian, and he was relating uh, his experience with animals to the Christian life. And he highlights the fact that a lot of people like pet raccoons because they're so cute, at least initially. And yet he would say at about two years old, about 24 months, there's something that happens inside a raccoon uh, and its glands. There's a glandular change that happens so that from that point on, it is very, very dangerous to have a raccoon and they're likely to attack you. And he had a friend named Julie who had this pet raccoon and he warned her. He said, you know what? There's, gonna, there's a change coming in this raccoon and he will attack you. And she said, oh, no, that can never happen to me. And, and little so-so, you know, I forget what, what she called him. Uh, he would never do that to me. It would be different with me. About two months later, uh, she had to have surgery on her face because the raccoon just attacked her for no apparent reason. Reason. And he uses that illustration in the book to talk about sin. He says, you know, we can look at sin as something that's harmless. And we can think, yeah, I know other people maybe had some negative experiences or consequences, but I think it would be different for me. And so on the one hand, in fighting sin, we need to realize that what Paul says about sin bringing death is true all the time. It always brings death. It always brings harm, always brings heartache, misery, negative consequences. It's not something that's, that we can have as a pet. We should never have pet sins. So on the one hand, uh, that's the reality. But the other thing he says, he says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Back in verse 21, he says, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you, you are now ashamed? The outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So he's arguing that sin brings death, but obedience to God brings life. Eternal life in John chapter 17 is defined as knowing God, experiencing God, enjoying God. So... um, The fight of sin is in light of the fact that sin brings death, but obedience to God brings the enjoyment of God. It it brings the happiness that sin promises. Sin promises happiness, but never delivers. It only brings death. But obedience to God, not trying to earn anything with God, but wanting to be like God and wanting to please God, actually brings us into the enjoyment of God in greater, deeper, richer ways. And so Paul's basically arguing, why would you want to give your life to something that's only going to bring death? Don't you know that you came to God and you were reconciled to God so that you could find your happiness in God? Doesn't that mean you give your life to pleasing God and trusting God and doing what God says? Don't you see how... Embracing sin as a Christian is is totally contrary to who you are and how you find real happiness. 
And that's what Romans 6 talks about is it tells us the truth about sin, about ourselves, and about how to find true happiness in God. And yet there's much more to be said. And that's why chapter 7 and chapter 8 bring other aspects of this whole um, discussion in and help us have a, a bigger larger picture of what it really looks like to live the Christian life and how challenging it can truly be. But hopefully, as you think about growth this year, start with the gospel. Start with what Christ has done for you to set you free from sin and pray that God would help you see that in greater, deeper, richer ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that is meant to encourage us to encourage us to see sin as we should, to see obedience to you as we should, so that we can pursue our true happiness in you as we should. Help us to do that like never before this year, trusting in and resting in the gospel of what Christ has done for us. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.